Why do you want to change? Why do you want to change now? What do you all hold true? What do you see as missing? It's asking the right questions, finding really generous and generative questions. And when people get stuck, well, sometimes we push and we, we, we name what's hard. Sometimes we just shake it up and we have to move around. We have to play a little bit. We have to think and move physically through the space to get to something different. So in, in many of the cases uh, of the groups I've been working with lately, I find out that they've had the ruby slippers on and the ability all the time. They just are looking at things through a lens that ne wasn't necessarily theirs, you know? Story, story, story. From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and transformation. I'm Bill Cleveland. Like Lenny Sloan from our first two episodes, Sandy Augustin is what one might characterize as a creative polymath, dancer, choreographer, a university and community educator, a producer, a community leader, healer, an artful alchemist whose work in the U.S. and overseas spans three decades. She's fueled her explorations and adventures with questions. What's your story? Who are your heroes? Where do you want to go and how can we help you get there? I spoke to Sandy in mid-May of 2020 in the midst of the global question mark that I've been calling Planet COVID. Certainly a suitable moment for a lively conversation with somebody who describes herself as a navigator. Part one, learning to drive. So Sandy, this may be a, a daunting task for you because you're so many things to so many communities and so many different people, but give it a shot. Try to describe what it is you do in the world. Um, okay. Uh, I have had to define this more and more, right? As the world has gotten more complex. And for me to say um, what I do is that I'm a creative navigator. That if you say you want to go to a place, let's say you want to go up north to a particular town, my job would be to help you figure out what kind of car is the right car, what kind of fuel is the right fuel, if there are stops along the way, um, to define why is that the best place and, and who are the people that should be in the car or who are the people in those places that you want to see along the way. So it really is helping individuals and organizations that navigate where they're going. And uh, the, my methodology is creative and creative means anything that will get us out of only um, intellectualizing the story, but to find the heart of the story. Um, that might be writing, it might be movement, it might be being really silly and playful and being humorous. Uh, it might be individual writing and it might be talking in small groups or communicating and story sharing with one other person. The metaphor you're using is the journey. A uh, road trip, actually, one of my absolute favorite things. Using creative tools and strategies to help folks and communities navigate a journey of decision-making or change. Can you share an example? Maybe most recently, 
the Regional Arts Council. They're looking at equity and equitable giving, giving to communities that haven't typically been given to before. We want to look at what what has been your vehicle of choice or uh, inherited vehicle. Are those still the right ones? Why do you want to change? Why do you want to change now? What do you all hold true? What do you see as missing? Uh, it's asking the right questions, finding really generous and generative questions. And when people get stuck, sometimes we push and we, we, we name what's hard. Sometimes we just shake it up and we have to move around. We have to play a little bit. We have to think and move physically through the space to get to something different. So in, in many of the cases uh, of the groups I've been working with lately, I find out that they've had the ruby slippers on and the ability all the time. They just are looking at things through a lens that wasn't necessarily theirs. You know, I, I just said eye exam, right? Which lens is clearer? One, two, two, three. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that one works, but it's a lot clearer if I get the right ones that fit my eyes. I can see better. I can see clearer. And then I can function in the world better if I'm looking through the right lenses. So I feel like that navigation is really helping people find the right lenses. And oftentimes they've had them or they've had access to them. They just didn't know they did. You've done a lot of work advancing social change with communities and organizations. Some people may not really understand how the creative process that you use, these methods of inquiry that you use can be relevant to people dealing with issues of poverty or crime or feelings of safety or a sense of belonging in the world. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I have been taking tango in the last few years and in interviewing uh, veteran dancers, good leaders will say a good leader's job is to make you feel safe and feel beautiful. I'm not going to impose something on you. I want to make you feel safe so that, that you can get there. And in that, you can shine and feel beautiful, okay? So I'll just say that as a, as a mover, that one's really resonating with me. In the case of working with, let's say, a, a group of folks that have been struggling with addiction and chronic homelessness, who are desperately trying to get themselves together so they can be good parents or good partners. What does it mean to feel safe and good in your own skin? How can building community help in that quest for oneself? So safe and good. Talk about how these creative tools and strategies can help these wounded souls begin to feel safe and good in their own skin. So a for instance would be offering up some creative tools, some designated time for people to focus on themselves, uh, to be creative and exercise something that is really about their own expression. It's their opinion. There's no right or wrong that allows them to uh, find their own flow and express themselves in a way that they're not invited to very often. In that case, if the individual feels like they're creative badge has been shined and polished and other people are sharing in that, sharing in their work, they're giving and exchanging. It's still sharing story in a safe, comfortable context that allows them then to flourish and perhaps understand each other on a really one-to-one -one human level. So 
if communities feel comfortable, if the people in those communities, whatever they describe themselves to be, feel confident, safe, comfortable enough to be beautiful, to be creative, I think we've got a healthier, more functional community. So your experience is that when you make art with folks, these things happen, a sense of safety, a sense of connection, a sense of coherence, and that people who are struggling with issues of substance abuse or poverty or equity, for these folks, this provides a foundation for individual and collective problem solving and action. You know, it gives them agency in their own lives where maybe they haven't felt control over a lot of things. This mm -hmm. is something you can't, you know, can't take that away from me, as the song says. I wonder, you know, there's perhaps a reason why the brain stores music, musical memories in a different place when the rest of the brain can be in trauma. What's sacred about that music? So what is sacred about those creative juices? You know, when, when people's brains are otherwise traumatized, there's got to be something about the sanctity of one's own creative expression. You know, there's uh, an interesting theoretical conversation that's been taking place among anthropologists and evolutionary psychologists who speculate that prior to the development of language in human species, you're describing the making of musical sounds and patterns with the voice was actually an early adaptive behavior that advanced our survival as humans. First, you know, because it's a powerful way to focus the attention of the community, the tribe, and second, because it reinforces that thing that you described earlier, which is a sense of identity or agency within that community. So the answer to your question about why the brain seems to process music differently may in fact just be that our brain evolved in a way that reinforces those things that work for us in the world and that music is one of those. Yes. And I, you know, I hearken back to, I mean, my own upbringing was when we had people over, which was often, we always had out the tinickling sticks, which are the long bamboo poles. And we did a tinickling dance, which is jumping in and out of the poles. I, I call it our own version of jump rope or double dutch. The idea was not to get caught by the sticks. That and it's tinickle, it means uh, it's, a, it's a bird. It's, it's um, mimicking these, these bird movements. And we always had music and dancing at all our parties. And to this day, people still talk about that. I remember all the parties in your backyard. I, I took it for granted that it's, it's always been a part of me to celebrate through music and through dance. It's the way of gathering family. It's a great way of sharing experiences. It's a way of celebrating. In your sharing this family history, you're touching on uh, your influences and how you came to this kind of work. Could you tell more of that story? Well, uh, I, I hearken all the way back to, as a child, um, grew up again, the daughter of a Filipino immigrant and a white mom in Minnesota. Very interesting combination of elements. My mother, who is not a dancer, nor was she Hawaiian took great interest in, for some reason, Hawaiian culture and dance, and signed me up for hula lessons at a very, very young age. I was nine. And much to my chagrin, I actually started to like it, and it somehow moved me to, to do it. It felt good to, to dance that way. 
Speed ahead, my older brother had a party planning business. He was 18 years my senior. And whenever the party had a Hawaiian theme, he would pay me $5 at the time, which was a lot of money, to do the hula. I learned at a young age which groups of people I wanted to do that with or for and which I did not. When I felt like a, um, a novelty, when I was being condescended to and, and used in a way, and when I was being appreciated for what I was doing, which I took actually very seriously because it resonated in my, in my body. And so at a really early age, I think I started making a distinction uh, speed forward. I did perform a lot. I choreographed. But what was most um, rewarding was when people got involved in the form itself. I felt like there was more excitement in the room. There was something more to talk about once the performance or once the time was over. And people felt connected. And I felt more connected to them. Move forward in time uh, as I was doing my own work and, and invited into places to be artists in residence at a place called the Pillsbury House in Minneapolis. This is early 90s. I wanted to bring other artists into my evening of uh, performance. And so they were drummers and they were other choreographers and performers sharing the, the space. And along the way, met some other artists who were involved in a place called Intermedia Arts. The period that Sandy is talking about here was a time of creative ferment for the growing Twin Cities Community Arts Tribe. Her organizational partners, Pillsbury House and Intermedia Arts, were beginning to create the kinds of innovative, community-responsive programs that would come to, to characterize Minnesota as a hotbed of visionary arts-based community development and training. Intermedia, in particular, had begun to expand the definition of art making beyond the idea of artists creating to the notion of everyone creating and building community. Sandy talked about this shift. I realized that there was a need to share stories and experiences through, through, our, through and around uh, and behalf of our, our art. And not only those who are professional artists or, or aspiring to do more with and through their art, but those who somehow wanted to be connected to it who would say at first that they were not creative. I took that on as a challenge because I really thought that everybody, everyone is creative. They just at some point were told not in these ways. Uh, you're not painting like, you're not coloring within the lines. You're not moving. You don't have the body like a real dancer. And I uh, pushed back against that because I would see beauty in bodies that didn't look like mine that could really move and express. I, I was just exposed to so many different ways of being in the world and seeing the world. So at one point, curating a intergenerational um, series called Thicker Than Water Art as a Family Value and presenting the work of two very well-known musical families in Minnesota, the Petersons, who are sort of the family of jazz in Minnesota, and the Buckner family, who are uh, gospel, putting those family of women together on the same stage, inspired our bookkeeper at the time who had been born on the Iron Range, was 60 years old, 65, divorced, five children, very quiet woman, grew up on a farm, had a background in some bookkeeping. And she came to me after seeing the program a couple of times and said, I, I have an idea I would like to 
to run by you. She was so inspired by what these other families were sharing. And she thought, I have that in my family. Huh, we have a family reunion coming up. I wonder if we could do it through the arts and creative expression. So she had just um, renovated a duplex, uh, the lower level of her duplex, and she turned that into a gallery, invited all her family from around the country to submit things that they thought were creative uh, that they wanted to show off. And it was everything from uh, quilts to the family Bible to um, ice skating medals to carving. It ran the gamut. And uh, she invited everyone, and there was just a different energy at this thing. And I actually interviewed folks. They had no idea the depth of the people in their, in their family. I got really turned on by that, by somebody else getting turned on to do something really cool that inspired multiple generations in their own corner of the universe. That got my juices flowing. And I decided that, again, um, and learning from other folks like yourself, Bill, when we create the right conditions for people to shine creatively and to exercise and exercise their creativity, incredible things happen. The spirit of the room is different. Conversations are different. People are invited into space differently. Um, so their engagement and their level of engagement, what carries on after the thing just ripples exponentially. And that is really turns me on. So that's my trajectory, I think. Part two, the rubber meets the road. I think uh, this snapshot that Sandy shared about the bookkeeper's family celebration illustrates how deeply our stories influence the ways we see each other. And through her simple invitation to share, Sandy's friend helped to reveal all those hidden layers and in the process nudging their family's story in different directions. I asked Sandy if she could talk more specifically about some of her own experience bringing these kinds of creative tools and strategies to bear in her own community. Another regular practice that I have that relates is working with young people in the public schools, storytelling, doing theater, using Augusto Boal's Theater of the Oppressed, which is really letting people make change by telling stories through just very simple snapshots, creating shapes and snapshots of, of a scene with their bodies and changing one element and really exploring what does it mean to change that thing? How does that change the story? And I am really moved and surprised, not surprised by working with a lot of young people, young kids of color um, who are in uh, many cases in dire financial and resource situations and watching them take control and take power situations through theater and watching change happen and hearing their comments and listening to what questions arise and feeling their level of excitement to get engaged and to make change. It's on a small level, but when we can see something that accessible, that small change, I think bigger things can be built upon it. Sandy makes mention of Augusto Boal here. There's such a thing as 
legends in the field of art and social change, Boal certainly qualifies. He was a Brazilian theater artist who pioneered a practice he called theater of the oppressed, using drama to stimulate social change in his native country and around the world. In the early 1970s, Boal's successful work earned him the enmity of Brazil's military regime, which resulted in his being kidnapped, arrested, tortured, and ultimately exiled to Argentina. His approach, often referred to as forum theater, radically shifts the role of the audience from spectator to collaborator in performances that not only explore social issues, but seek to mobilize citizen-driven solutions. Here's Boal describing forum theater on a June 3rd, 2005 broadcast of KPFA's Democracy Now! The forum theater is exactly the image of the mirror. No? We present the problem because sometimes we know what the problem is. All of us agree we, we have this problem. So, for instance, the workers that go to uh, claim for better conditions of work or better salaries or whatever, everyone agrees. But how to do it, we don't know. So what we do? We present the play, whatever the theme is, whatever the problem is, we present the play, and then we look at like uh, normal spectators. But at the end, we say, okay, this ended in failure. So how could we change the events? Everything is going to change in society, in our biological life. Everything is always changing. Nothing is going to stay the way it is. All is going to... So how can we change this for better? And then we start again the same play and we invite the audience to at any time that they want to say stop, go to replace the protagonist and show alternatives. So we learn from one another. You have in a scene the wrong solution, the wrong way. And then we try to see what is the right way. We don't know. We don't do the political theater of the 50s in which we had the propaganda, you had an idea, you have a message. We don't have the message. We have the questions. We bring the what, what can we do? And democratically, everyone can say stop and jump on the scene and try a solution or an alternative. And then we discuss that alternative and then a second, a third, as many as uh, people are there. So what we want is to develop the capacity of people to create, to use their intelligence, to use their sensibility. I asked Sandy how Boal's approach had worked in the context of a particular class or individual student. She told the story of a fifth grader she called M, describing him as untethered because he would at times literally wander in and out of the classroom. Sandy asked M's teacher if she could spend some time with him one-on-one. -on -one. Over lunch, they talked about what they were doing in class, and despite his inattention, Sandy was surprised by how much had sunk in. One particular question she had asked the class seemed to have struck a chord. If you could, what part of your story would you change? This prompted him to talk about his parents who had been in prison. Sandy felt this sharing could be an important step forward. She found out when M returned to class and they continued their work exploring story snapshots, which Boal called tableaus. The story was about, um, in real life, Temple Grandin, who is a very well-known animal expert and someone who, as a child and who lives as an adult with autism, but who has been able to articulate what that experience was about. Um, her story was about being bullied in school and having people around her in her early days that didn't understand her condition um, and how, how she was bullied, how when people recognized her talents, 
how she flourished enough to go to school, grad school, and get a PhD. A movie was made about her life, et cetera. Um, the kids were asked to create a scene that resonated with them from the story they heard and to recreate a scene. And so we had about five kids. And I said, uh, I'm, I'm going like, to give you two minutes, sorry, two minutes to talk about what, who's going to play what role. You're just going to freeze in that shape. Like we're looking at a snapshot, a frozen image. And then we have to figure out what's going on in the scene. So we gave them two minutes. And then we said, lights, camera, action, freeze. Um, and it was really clear. Then as facilitator, I say, who is this person playing? Who is this person? What are they doing? How do you think they feel? Okay, someone from the audience, go tap one person in there in this story and change, change what's going on. So they tapped out one of the bullies, made themselves the in-between, M, that tapped one person out who put himself in as the block between the bully and the bullied, and he empowered himself. And he was the one that, when we asked him, how did that feel to step into that situation? He actually had the words for it. I felt like I was helping out somebody that, that couldn't help themselves. And it changed the story. How does it change this? Well, somebody's standing up for her. Somebody's blocking the bullying from happening. Okay, someone else tapped someone else. So we eventually got rid of all the bullies, brought in a principal at the school in the story that could have intervened and what they would do. The child was playing the, per the person being bullied and we asked them, how did it make you feel? It made me feel safer. It made me feel happy. It made me feel like I had friends. I had people around me that would protect me. They see what they can do in just that little snapshot. It's really powerful. So what you just described, as you say, is simple but powerful. It's a practice that can be useful where people often feel silenced or have a difficult time describing what's going on with them. And it sounds like, in essence, you're introducing them to another language, which they actually already know, but they haven't put to use for their own purposes. Yes, that's the ruby slippers. You have it. We just need to unlock it. Maybe you need to go on a really colorful journey in order to get there that unleashes the creativity and the possibility to just go there. Yeah. Yeah. It occurs to me that M's struggle had more than one layer. The first is the feeling of being lonely or afraid or angry or not competent, but then there's being incredibly self-conscious about all the confusion that comes with those feelings. And so bringing the element of play where taking stock and making choices aren't always fraught with incredible danger gives them the safe place to go to practice sorting things out and finding their voice. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, I just want to add, I'm working also with folks over 55 now in a new theater company called Theater 55. And we're doing musicals. Um, they're fun. You know, it's great to use your voice. It's great to meet new people. What we're finding, Bill, is that everything that you just described exists in these bodies that are over 55 years old. Mm -hmm. There's uncertainty if there, I still have relevance, if I still have the muster, if I ever did, uh, will they like me? We're, we're identifying all of these things as a theater company, right? That uh, we do have intentions of helping to eliminate isolation for a lot of folks that are 
over their, in their 70s at this point that have been living alone. We're finding out what kind of isolation they've been struggling with and what, what does creative play in the construct of doing a musical, how does that help them thrive in community? What does that do? It's so similar to what happens in a classroom using theater and all these theater games. I use a lot of the same games and they love them. Another thing that strikes me is that you're a working artist and you are in essence sharing basic skills that artists in your practice train to learn, that, that artists practice over and over to use in their regular creative work. From the outside looking in, one might say, oh, well, this is therapy. How do you address that? Yeah, I, I realized a long time ago when someone said, um, while working with young people, uh, inner city youth of color, young women in particular who are struggling with a lot of things in their home lives and saying, well, you know, we're not therapists and having to decide where is my basket the deepest where I can feed you creative. You know, I can hear the story about your mom's struggle with addiction and the boyfriends and your anger, but the only tools I have really right now for you are those that are creative. And if, if your creative self is being inspired, you have a way to express that. And if that's keeping you from going to the edge of some breaking point or doing something that you're going to regret, then that's okay. Then we'll call it therapeutic. But my toolbox are creative tools. You, you have to make a decision about how deep you want to go into some other weeds or what are the tools accessible to you that are going to help this person thrive on their own behalf. Thinking back, particularly to your work with schools, I know that teachers who are often overwhelmed can end up seeing particular kids as the troublemaker or unresponsive or whatever. And it occurs to me that when you give these kids an opportunity to shine in new ways, their relationship with teachers can change. The story of who they are and what they're capable of can be profoundly altered for both the student and the teacher. Um, Bill, you hit a nail on the head. Caring, capable teachers who are also creative can get really overwhelmed because there's so many layers of trauma and people get triggered. And then there is the trickle down. If the principal is one that looks at, you know, who's doing something wrong, it, it, it trickles down to the whole system. And I often come in and I say, I, I don't, I don't want to know who has, who are the troublemakers, Right. I really love bringing teachers into being creative and playing because it lightens their load too. It, it helps them be somebody outside of a disciplinarian or, or whatever other role they've had to take other than someone who's inspiring kids to learn. So I find um, in the classrooms, especially, I've, and I've had to say this to a teacher I really admire a lot, your flashlight is much stronger than mine in the classroom. So when you leave the classroom, it gets a lot dimmer and all kinds of stuff happen in the dark. And I, my, I, I can only flash my flashlight and get one or two. Yours illuminates the whole room. So if you could keep your flashlight in the room with me, that's a lot funner. You know, we have more fun and we play. I think they, they're, um, they've got heroic jobs, those that stay in the classroom on a regular basis. They sometimes just need a break and I think a creative inspiration on their own behalf. Sandy, I know that 
In addition to working in schools and institutions and communities, you have a very rich creative life as a performer. Talk about how your community work and your stage and studio work feed each other. Oh, absolutely. It's really hard to, to teach when you're not learning as well. It's so humbling to have gone back to doing tango, and it's helped, I think, enrich my choreographic skills. My job is to make you feel safe and look beautiful and feel comfortable. <laughs> um, because I had to do that feeling vulnerable as a new learner in a new art form, right? I'm still learning. And I, yes, I still have to create. When I'm distanced from creating, uh, it makes my facilitation a little weaker. Those things are not as accessible. They're not as readily available to me. So I have to be uh, creating and experiencing the same things. And I'm asking other people to do, to make themselves vulnerable. But uh, it's, it's air, right? Yeah. So it's really mm -hmm. fun. Um, that brings me joy. Well, and that brings me joy. I'm so proud to have you as a friend and colleague and to have had an opportunity really to explore not just the story of your work, but also give you an opportunity to talk about some of the ins and outs of your practice, which aren't always obvious to audiences or even your colleagues. So thanks again for spending the time with us. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please join us for our next episode. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and directed by Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape are by Judy Munson. And join the continuing conversations and check out our show notes at the Center's website at www.artandcommunity.com. <laughs>